Matthew, beginning at 1222. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. We are in the middle of a teaching series right now that we're calling the hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, the hard sayings of Jesus. We're basically looking at some of the more difficult things that Jesus said. Maybe they're difficult because they're hard to understand. Maybe they're difficult because uh, they sort of um, hit us bluntly, right? Uh, they're, they're hard to obey or to live accordingly. Uh, and in, in, in this afternoon's uh, passage, Jesus talks about what he calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is many considered uh, by many and considered in the scriptures as the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. Maybe you didn't know that there was a sin in the Bible named from the mouth of Jesus himself that he considers unpardonable. How do we make sense of that? Uh, this is obviously a long passage of scripture. So why don't I just pray for us and then we'll go ahead and dive in. All right. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive, that it is active, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. I pray, God, that uh, you would just make your word come alive to us this afternoon. That we might be able, by, by, by digging into each verse, see what is meant by this hard saying of your son Jesus. Consider what he meant by these words and apply it to our lives today. You tell us, God, that 
that your word is, is like bread that we can feast on, be nourished by. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do that in us this afternoon? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So let's just go ahead and dig into our text. Here's point number one. Jesus brings the power of God in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he, he came to do many things. One of those things is to bring in, to usher down the power of God, and he does that through the Holy Spirit. We see this in verse 22 to 27. It says that this demon-oppressed man who was blind, he couldn't see, and he was mute, he couldn't speak, was brought to him, brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people, they were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? the Messiah that they've longed for. And then verse 24, it says, but when the Pharisees, when they heard it, they said, no, it is only by Beelzebul, uh, which is another name for Satan, the prince of demons, that, that this man casts out demons. Jesus, because he's God in the flesh, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided itself divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. So how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they, they will be your judges. And so here's what's happening. Jesus, he heals this demon-possessed, this demon-oppressed man who's blind, he's mute, and people are asking, hey, is this the Messiah? Is this the one that's been promised us from all the old prophets? Could this be the guy that we've been longing for, the one that we've been waiting for, fasting for, praying about? And this, of course, enrages the Pharisees, because the Pharisees were this group of religious elites, they were very privileged. They held a lot of power. And, and to them, like, they were the it guys, right? Like, to all the people in the region, they were sort of the religious it guys. People followed them. They gave their money to them. They supported them. They sang their praises. And then in comes Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah, performing all sorts of miracles, teaching things that were amazing people. So they were kind of ticked off by that. They're like, no way, this guy's not the Messiah. The only way he's doing these things is by the power of Satan, right? Which is a pretty, pretty weak excuse. But it's like they're scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to look at, at any sort of critique, any, any sort of uh, slander that they could lob at him. And it says that Jesus, in verse 25, it says that, that he, he knew their thoughts. And he's like, that's just... That's insane. That's illogical. Why would the devil, devil want, to want to cast his own demons out? Why would the devil torment someone, then send somebody else to free that man of said torment? I mean, he'd be des destroying his own work. A house divided against itself can't stand, Jesus says. And then in verse 27, Jesus points out that they're also being inconsistent. He says, Look, he says, you guys, you Pharisees, you have sons and disciples who cast out demons. We read about this in the book of Acts. Uh, in, in, in the book of Acts, we, we hear about the seven shuns, or sons of Sceva who are casting out demons. 
And Jesus is saying, look, you approve it when those guys do it. So are your followers satanic? And if so, what does that make you? His point is that if this miraculous deliverance is not by the power of Satan, then it must be by the power of God. And not only does Jesus come to bring the power of God uh, in the spirit, but he also brings the kingdom of God through the spirit. Point number two, Jesus brings the kingdom of God through the spirit. Verse 28, he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, which it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, if he's not casting out these demons by the power of the devil, then the only possibility that he's casting out these demons by the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, look, if that's true, if I'm really casting out these demons by the Spirit of God, then you need to know that that means the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. And do you know what the kingdom of God is? The kingdom of God, put succinctly, is wherever God's people are living under God's perfect reign. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's when God's beloved people, his chosen people, are living under his perfect reign. Where God is, has the power, where he's reorienting things towards what is ultimately true, good, and beautiful. That's what the kingdom of God is. You see, the Bible tells us the story of the world. And in the beginning, it says that when sin entered the world, that its wickedness, the wickedness of sin, began to manifest all throughout creation. That's why we have death and disease and disasters and things like demonic influence, which we read about in this passage. Satan seized temporary influence over our sin-tainted world. And so when Jesus comes, when he comes to make things right again, when he comes to undo all that sin has done at the cost of his own life, he's bringing the kingdom of God back with him. As it pertains to the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of Christ overcomes demonic oppression, brings us deliverance from such demonic oppression. It's interesting that like in all the Old Testament, in all the Old Testament, there's only five books, five Old Testament books that even mention the devil. But nowhere in any of those books do you read about a prophet or a priest or a king or a sage casting out any demons. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you see that. But as soon as Jesus steps onto the stage of creation, he starts to flex his power over demonic oppression. Right away, when his ministry starts, he has this conflict with Satan in the wilderness. In the book of Mark, chapter 1, it says his ministry is involved with the casting out of many demons, it says. His disciples are given authority to do the same. You see that all throughout the Gospels. And so it's clear. It's clear that something new, something unprecedented is happening here with the coming of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. 
all the spiritual conflict that's been working behind the scenes throughout the Old Testament, all the spiritual conflict that's been working behind the scenes through things like idolatry, through things like national conflicts, are all of a sudden brought out into the open. And Jesus is bringing a new authority, new weaponry, new armor to wage war against this evil, demonic oppression. Jesus, he further drives his point about how he, he, he came to, to bring the kingdom. In verse 29, he says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Kind of an interesting picture he gives us here, right? Jesus gives us like a pro tip on how to rob a guy's house. He says, if you enter a strong man's house. I tried to think of like the clearest metaphor for a strong man. So imagine someone's trying to break into my house, all right? Uh, why are you laughing? I'm <laughs> just kidding. Let's use The Rock, all right? Let's say somebody is trying to break into Dwayne The Rock Johnson's house. You walk into his house, you smell what he's cooking, and you're like, hey, Dwayne, Dwayne, you think you could help me grab the other end of this plasma TV, walk it out to the truck that I've got out in front of your house? Like, you, you think he'd want to help you with that? No way. There's no way that The Rock is going to help you rob his house. You'd need, like, Jason Statham to help you bind him up if you want any hope of getting out of there alive. That's just basic, like, plundering 101 that Jesus is bringing to the forefront here. If you're going to rob a guy's house... You don't get the owner of the house to help you. You bind the homeowner, and then you can plunder his goods. See, Jesus has not come into the home of Satan who has temporary dominion over our world. He has not come into the home of Satan to, to ask for his help, you know, on, on, to, to rob and plunder uh, uh, the, the goods of this world. No, Jesus has come to bind him. And plunder his goods. That's what he's doing when he's healing diseases, when he's conquering natural disasters, forgiving sins, reviving the dead, casting out demons. All of his work that Jesus is doing shouts, no one is stronger than sin and Satan. There's one who is stronger than sin and Satan that is here. And the evil one is being bound. The king is at work. That's what's being said by Jesus casting out these demons. So he does that by the power of the Spirit. It leads us to point number three. Neutrality with Jesus is impossible. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he's come to do what he is now doing, then you can't be neutral with him. You can't. Verse 30, Jesus says that. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and by extension to us, he's saying, look, you can't be neutral with me. You're either with me or you're against me. Every person, every person who, who comes to know who Jesus is has to reckon with that question. Am I with Jesus or am I against him? Either you believe that Jesus is evil and you are good or he is good and now you have to wholeheartedly follow him. 
He's either a Messiah to be praised or a demon to be cursed. C.S. Lewis has a helpful analogy that he gives in, in his uh, apologetic work, Mere Christianity. Um, it's known as the, the liar, lunatic, and, and Lord analogy. And I'm, some of you may have heard this before. A lot of people think it's helpful. So uh, I'm going to read you this quote from his book. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Christ, where they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, which really is just another way of saying, look, like I'm going to be kind of neutral about Jesus. He said some good things, some helpful things, uh, but, but I'm not going to accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher because Jesus claimed to be God himself. He told us to give up everything if you want to follow him. Lewis clarifies and he says that man would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. You see, that's why these Pharisees, when they felt so threatened by who Jesus was, what he was teaching, and all that he was doing, they couldn't be neutral with him. They just said, no, he's doing this by the devil's hand. And Jesus pointed out, no, look, whoever's not with me, you're against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. You can't be neutral with him. By Jesus saying that, that's an invitation into the very kingdom that he came to bring. And it's the kind of invitation that comes not from a malicious dictator, but from a gracious king. Jesus has come, and we see it through the way that he is, is turning over this demon oppression. He's come to declare war against all that is evil, against all that is bad, against all that hurts us. Jesus has declared war, and there is no Swiss neutrality when it comes to this war. Are you with him? Are you for him? Or are you against him? Christ has come to rescue us from evil. He's come to rescue us from Satan's dominion. And he does that by dethroning Satan and by bringing the reign of God on earth. He's coming to do that by undoing all the effects of evil and sin. You see, in the kingdom of King Jesus, the blind will be made to see. And not just made to see, but they'll see wonders. In the kingdom of King Jesus, the mutes will begin to speak, and they won't just speak anything. They'll speak the oracles of God. The hungry will be fed, and not just fed any meal. They will sit at the table of the Lord. And the poor will have no lack. And it's not that you'll just have some stuff, but they'll have riches. 
unending riches at the right hand of God forevermore. And every enemy of Jesus will be crushed and his perfect kingdom will be restored. All that is true, all that is good, all that is beautiful will be preserved and will never fade or decay. See, neutrality with Jesus is impossible. You can't just be flippant about the kingdom of God. You either have to outright reject it or wholeheartedly run into it. Jesus continues and he talks about just the nature of God's saving work with this curious passage in verse 31. This brings us to point number four that um, almost every sin is forgivable. Almost every sin is forgivable. Verse 31, he says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Those are some serious words, right? That's why this passage made it into our series on the hard sayings of Jesus. What do they mean? What do they mean? What do these words mean? Now, we've said this time and again throughout uh, this series, but if you really want to understand what a hard saying means, or really any hard passage of Scripture means, you need to consider the context, right? You look at the specific context, like the verses before and after this verse, to get a better idea of what's being said here. And you also got to think of the overall context of the Bible and ask, you know, like, Where does this passage fit in the great story of redemption? So first, let's look at how this passage fits in the overall context. We know from Scripture that God reveals himself as merciful, right? He reveals himself as merciful. I mean, when God first introduced himself to his people uh, in the book of Exodus through the prophet Moses, it says in Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is how God wants to be known. That is how God wants to be introduced. He's a God who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We see this all from the Old Testament to the New, that God is a forgiving God. The infamous issue that we have when reading this passage of the unforgivable sin is we want to ask ourselves, like, man, have I committed this sin? Right? Have I ever committed this sin? Because I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to be kept from the kingdom of God. Right? That's a great question to ask. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But I don't want you to overlook the glorious truth from the overall context of the scriptures this truth that jesus zeroes in on in verse 31 when he says every sin every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven you see the greater point is not that the grace of god is limited but that the grace of god is abounding we tend to focus in on the blasphemy of the holy spirit part but the greater point is that god's grace is abounding God isn't dishing out his grace in tiny bits and rations. No, it's an outpour. It's abounding in steadfast love. 
I think sometimes, if you're like me, sometimes you, we worry that our sin is beyond the grace of God. We think like, no, but there's that one thing that I said that I regret. Or there's that one thing that I did that has hurt a lot of people, that I know offended God. There's that perversity in my heart that I'm ashamed of that I don't want anybody to know about. But Jesus says, no, every sin will be forgiven. You might think whatever's going on in your head or your heart or your past might be so bad that God won't forgive you. You haven't even brought yourself to confess that because you're too ashamed. But no, Jesus says every sin will be forgiven. The scandal, the very scandal of grace, what makes grace so scandalous is that it cannot be earned. So the minute you start to think that maybe you deserve grace more than the next person, or maybe you need to get to, your pla- to a place where you deserve grace more than the next person, that's the moment that reveals that you don't really get grace. You don't understand it. It's a gift. Grace is a gift, not based on what we have done, but it's based on what Christ has done. We see this scandal of grace all throughout the scriptures. Who does God use in his plan of redemption? He uses guys like Abraham, who was a coward and tried to hand over his wife so that he could be spared. We see guys like Jacob, who was a liar. We see women like Rahab, who was a prostitute. Men like Moses, who was a murderer. Guys like King David, who was an adulterer. Or in the New Testament, we read about guys like Peter, who was a betrayer, left Jesus in the hour that Jesus needed him the most, denied that he had anything to do with Jesus. Or what about Paul, the apostle, a persecutor of Christ and his church? God not only forgives all these people, but he uses them. He doesn't just forgive them of their past, but he now uses them in his great plan to redeem and restore the world. You see, the grace of God comes to us not just in spite of our sin. It extends through our sins. It comes to us in the middle of our sins and extends through our sins. And he uses us to redeem and restore the world. So that's just the overall context of the story of Scripture that we need to to reckon with when we want to consider what does this passage mean. And so now let's consider the specific context of this passage. We know that Jesus is speaking to Pharisees who are decidedly opposed to him. They have hunkered down. They are scraping the bottom of the barrel for an excuse not to submit to him. They are decidedly opposed to him to the point where they're saying that all that Jesus is doing is not through the power of the Spirit, but through the power of Satan. They're speaking against him. They're acting against him. They're defying him, slandering him, mocking him. I mean, these would be the very same guys who would go on to to get Judas to betray Jesus, put up a mock trial, get Jesus beaten, and dragged to the cross.
That is the kind of blasphemy of the spirit that Jesus is talking about here. But even before he gets into the blasphemy of the spirit, I want you to just quickly, point number five, see that even the blasphemy of the son is forgivable. That's pretty wild, right? You'd think that Jesus would say, look, anyone who blasphemes against me, who says a word against me, is, is not forgiven. But no, he says even the blasphemy of the Son is forgivable. Look at what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, which is another name for himself, will be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son is forgivable. How? We know from what the scriptures say elsewhere is through repentance. Through repentance. You could deny Christ one moment, but then repent and return to him the next and receive his forgiveness. I mean, we saw that in the example we heard about it earlier from like Peter and Paul, right? Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was restored by Jesus. Paul, who persecuted the church, got a bunch of followers of Jesus killed. Chosen by Jesus, saved by Jesus, and sent and commissioned by Jesus to plant churches and to pastor pastors. And we see this like all over our lives. There's, there's, there, I know some of you here in this church that I know your guys' story. Like we have a leader in this church who, who, who used to, to, to take a lot of pride in, in how, how decidedly atheistic he was. He used to take a lot of pride in, in trying to convert or deconvert Christians in his own life. And he succeeded at that many times again and again. And yet God did a saving work in his heart. God did a saving work in his heart. This, this, this young man who used to blaspheme the son is now saved. A son of God. A leader in the church. We do this, we blaspheme the Son too when we question his goodness, when we question his faithfulness. But every time that happens, the Bible tells us we can respond by repenting. That leads us to point number six, that the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, however, is unforgivable. Look at the rest of verse 32. When Jesus says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, those are harsh words, and so we got to ask, what is it? What, what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and should I be afraid of it? You know, maybe, maybe I slipped along the way somewhere and said something bad against the, not, the Holy Spirit. There's a, the, some of you guys might know that there was this campaign that, that, that went around in 2006, uh, I forget the name of the group that put it together, um, but it was called the, the Blasphemy Challenge. Uh, and it was this group of uh, atheists uh, that challenged young people uh, who were uh, not in the church, uh, people who were atheists, uh, who wanted nothing to do with Christianity. They, they, they challenged these people uh, to take video recordings of themselves, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, uh, saying things like, I don't believe in the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, and then putting it up on YouTube. And they had this whole, whole like, hashtag, and, and the thing was, like, trending on for, like, a number of years. And, and all of these, uh, you know, like, famous atheists uh, got on it. Like, Chris Hitchens uh, did one. Uh, Richard Dawkins did one. Penn Gillett went, did, did, did one. Uh, 
um, Bill Maher and like, like people like that. And they were all just engaging in this blasphemy challenge, trying to get like all these young people uh, through YouTube to record themselves uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit uh, on YouTube. But by doing that, they show that they really don't understand what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't saying something bad about the Holy Spirit that you're going to regret later. And to, to understand, we again have to look at the context. When one verse, Jesus is talking about how all sins will be forgiven. And then in this one, he's talking about how there's a sin that will not be forgiven. We need to understand it in light of what we saw earlier, right? Jesus is being accused of working by the power of Satan. You got a group of people who are refusing to see who Jesus is, refusing to accept who he is. Jesus is performing these miracles and uh, saving this demon-oppressed man. He's turning back uh, all the effects of evil, all the effects of sin, all the effects of Satan. And he's doing it by the power of the Spirit. And yet you have this group of people who are just refusing to see it. All the evidence is in front of them. And they're just like, no, I don't want to see it. I don't want to accept that. We're not going to follow this Jesus. You guys need to be following us. And in doing so, the very avenue of their forgiveness is being rejected. Jesus is speaking to people. In these words, he's speaking to people who've hardened their hearts against him. By attributing Jesus' work to Satan, they've sort of set themselves in total opposition to the Spirit of God. Now, what's significant about that? It's significant because the very way that we receive forgiveness is through the Spirit of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God is the only one who can draw them to repentance. The Spirit of God is the only one who can convict us of sin. Remember when we looked at that a few weeks ago in John 16, verse 8? It says, and when he comes, when the helper comes, which is another name for the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world of sin and judgment. And so if you're going to deny that, if you're going to do everything that you can to deny the work of the Spirit, you'll never get to this place where you acknowledge your own sin. You'll never get to this place where you acknowledge ways that you've rebelled against God. Or what about 1 Corinthians 12? We see another example in verse 3. Paul says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. Now see, the unforgivable sin involves a willful unbelief, a determined unbelief. These guys had the evidence, but they said, no, we don't want to see it. We don't want to acknowledge it. It involves a persistent rebellion where they responded with pride rather than with humility. And it involves a final denial, a permanent refutation. These would be the guys that would send Jesus on to his death. One commentator, William Hendrickson, clarifies it this way. He says, for penitence, these guys, they substitute 
hardening, for confession, plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, they are dooming themselves. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. When a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. That makes sense, right? Like, that makes sense. Like, how can anyone be saved if they pridefully and permanently reject the work of the Spirit to open their eyes to the very saving works of Christ? Only the Spirit of God draws us to salvation. Only the Spirit of God can lead us to repentance. And so to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to cut yourself off completely from the very means of having forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. The context here shows us that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not like this careless act, but a hardened state of rejecting the Spirit's witness to Jesus Christ. Here's another quote. I know we've got a lot of quotes, but I thought this one was really helpful from Sam Storms. Uh, an, an older Acts 29 pastor out in Oklahoma. He says that this was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment, but a persistent lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a calloused attitude. The Pharisees had seen Jesus heal the sick, Raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, teach the Sermon on the Mount, give sight to the blind, heal the paralytics. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, but unashamed unbelief that arises not from ignorance of what is true, but an outright defiance of what one knows beyond doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's when you persist in that and persist in that and persist in that to where there's no hope that you ever call out for forgiveness. Some of us in here, we we have a friend... um, Dr. Williams, who's uh, spoken at our church before. He's a professor up at Biola. And um, he, he told, told us a story once about uh, this, this uh, he, was, he, he and his friends were at this, this restaurant. And at the bar, uh, he met this, this, this girl. Uh, and they just started talking uh, philosophy and theology and apologetics. Uh, she was really intrigued that he taught uh, a, a, a class called the History of Atheism at Saddleback College, but he himself was a professing Christian. So she's really intrigued by that. And so uh, him and his friends, they just spent like all this time talking to this girl about why they believe in Jesus. And then he, uh, at one point in the conversation, he started going after just the physical um, uh, evidence for the resurrection, right? He's like, 
you know, it really all comes down to whether or not you believe in the resurrection. Because if you believe in the resurrection, then you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so they started going through all the evidence, and she'd be like, well, what about this? And then he would come back with a counterpoint. And so they're talking about this, like, back and forth for a while. And then she gets to this point to where she's like, you know, like, you've answered all my questions. And just at a point of candid honesty, she's like, you know, I, I, can, I can see how this is true. Like, if everything that you've said is true, like, I can, I can see how this is true. And I can almost find myself saying that I, that I believe that it's true. And he's like, well, why don't you want to say that? She's like, but if that is true, that means my whole life has to change. I don't want my whole life to change. Determined denial. Faced with undeniable evidence. And it doesn't mean that she's committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and that she, there's no hope for this woman. We can pray for her that she eventually like repents of her ways and, and comes to call Jesus as Lord. But if she persists in that day after day, month after month, year after year, to the point where like all of these, these, uh, these lifelines that have been thrown out to her, she just keeps saying no to. Jesus is saying, man, you're getting to the point where you're like digging your own grave. And there's no hope for you. You get to a point where there's a point of no return. You get to a point where there's a point of no repentance. Jesus is sharing this to the Pharisees to try and almost like beckon them to come back. He's sharing this for everyone who is listening to warn them never to get to this point. And it leads us into our last point. We must realize that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, is a sin of the heart and not of the lips. It's a sin of the heart and not of the lips. You see, it's not enough to record yourself on YouTube for some hashtag campaign to be guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But it's this continued state of your heart this is why Jesus says in verse 33 to 35, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. And then he calls out the Pharisees and says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Now, why are we going from spiritual warfare with this demon-possessed man to fruit and trees? What's the significance of this? What's the connection? Jesus is making a point here that the inner working of the Holy Spirit, like if we, if we truly have encountered the Holy Spirit, he does a work not just in our lives that's observable, but he does an inner working that brings real change, that brings lasting change. It's an important gospel principle that every good tree will produce good fruit. When talking about the gospel, we always want to emphasize salvation by grace, right? And that's good and glorious. But then does that mean that good works don't matter? No, of course it doesn't mean that. Jesus uses this analogy to help us understand the relationship between grace and works. The Bible teaches that we are not saved by works, but that we are saved to good works. We are saved to bear good fruit. 
Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. In other words, if you're truly saved, then you're like a good tree that will produce good fruit. But here's what some of us, here's what some of us, we try to do, all right? Like, imagine in your backyard that you got like this rotten tree, this rotten tree producing all kinds of bad fruit. And you're like, hey, this, this, looks, this looks nasty. This, this fruit's not edible. It's not good. You can't eat it. It's starting to smell funky. And so you go up to the tree and you start to take all the bad fruit off. You head over to the store, get a bunch of good fruit, healthy, plump-looking fruit, ripe fruit, and you come over and you stick it on the tree, right? You staple it on. You tape it on, right? And you're like, hey, look at that. Now the tree has got good fruit. Like, that's ludicrous, right? Like that, you would never do that. Does that suddenly make the tree a good, a good tree? Of course not. But that's exactly what many of us do. We know that we should be loving and patient and kind, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We know we should be these things, and so we take those virtues and we try to attach them on the outside because we know we should emulate them. But it's not coming from our own hearts. So if a tree has bad fruit, what are you supposed to do? You got to attend to the tree. You got to attend to the roots. You got to transform this bad tree into a good tree if you want it to bear good fruit. So you make sure it's got the water it needs. You make sure it's got the sunshine it needs. You make sure that the, the soil is tilled, that it's nourished for this tree to be recreated, to be made new. And so as Christians, we know that we're supposed to bear fruit, but the solution is not try harder, but the solution is to nourish the soul of our hearts. It's like, you know, many of you know that a couple years ago, my, my daughter had to have open heart surgery. And it was kind of like this, this crazy thing that we were able to find it so early, early on uh, in her age. She was like around um, four at the time. Uh, but uh, they found this condition where like one part of her heart was uh, receiving too much blood because it had like extra blood vessels going to it. It's called partial anomalous venous return or something like that, right? Like there's all this, this, this blood was returning to her heart on one side that wasn't supposed to be. And so, and so one side of her heart was like expanding uh, too big. And usually what happens when they don't catch it that young is that you'll, you'll grow up uh, to be older. Obviously, you grow up to be older. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm talking faster than I'm thinking. Uh, but you, you, you grow up, and when you're older, like you, because you have your, your, your heart is too big on one side, um, your, your lungs aren't actually receiving uh, the nourishment from your blood that they need. And so you start to have shortness of breath. You start to get fatigued. You start to get tired. You can't breathe. And typically what happens is they find this like later in life because you can't breathe and you find it hard to do stuff and then they do all these tests and then they find it and then they operate on your heart to, to fix it, right? And so imagine if they didn't find this as soon as they did, my daughter grew up, uh, let's just say she's 16, 17 years old, she's in a sport 
And all of a sudden, she, can't, she, she realizes she can't perform at uh, the same way that, that, that she used to. And so she goes to the doctor, and they say, oh, your problem is shortness of breath. And they, they give her, you know, like, yeah, you know, just, just, just use this inhaler. Like, that, that, that will, will help you out, right? Uh, and so she does that, and after years, it, it just comes back. You know, this isn't helping anymore because her, her heart's getting bigger, and, and her, her, uh, her, her lungs are, are, are still getting deprived. And no longer the inhaler is not working anymore. And so she goes back to the doctor, and they're like, "Okay, well, like, try these, try this other inhaler, or try these exercises to like expand your your lung capacity." None of those things would ultimately be helpful, because what they don't realize is that the problem is with her heart. They need to address her heart. That's where the real problem is. Her heart needs to be made new. And if you don't address that problem, then you're not going to have a healthy person. You see, when we only deal with our sinful acts and our sinful words and not our hearts and what we're loving, where our affections are at, then we're only dealing with our symptoms and we're not actually dealing with the heart. But true fruit, a true fruitful Christian life comes from the inner renewal of the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, we see a beautiful picture of this in the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, it says, God is saying to his people, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in the statute, in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, it's not a makeover that we need, but it's a new birth. A new birth. And in the final verses of our passage, back in Matthew 12, Jesus addresses the words that we use. He says in verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I want you to notice he doesn't say you'll be held accountable for bad words, the bad things that you've said, but for careless words. Because you should be using your words for the glory of God and for the good of others. Which is interesting because this Jesus is the same guy who just called them a brood of vipers, right? Brood of vipers, which is another way of saying venomous snakes. Is Jesus being a hypocrite by calling them brood of vipers and then talking about, you know, not using careless words? No, it's because he's redefining what it looks like to use our words for the glory of God. Sometimes it means saying what needs to be said, speaking up against injustice, speaking up for those that need protection. Sometimes it means being willing to have hard conversations in order to draw someone closer to Christ. Sometimes that's a loving thing to do. But the point Jesus is getting at is that when the Holy Spirit begins to do a work in your heart, It changes you. The Spirit changes you, and He keeps you, and you begin to bear fruit that blesses others and brings glory to God. Before we close, I want us to make it practical. How do we make this strange passage of Scripture and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit practical for us? First, if you're actually worried that you've committed this sin, don't be. (laughs) 
If you worry that you've committed the sin, don't be. Because those who are worried about committing this sin are the least likely to have actually committed it. If you're worried of having blasphemed the Holy Spirit, the very fact that you're worried about it is actually a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. You're convicted by sin. You don't want to find yourself at odds with God. That's, that's the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus Christ. Secondly, don't label anyone else as guilty of this sin. Don't label anyone else as guilty of this sin. Don't look up who, who did the blasphemy challenge on YouTube and, and, and be guilty of this sin, right? God alone knows a person's heart. God alone knows who's gotten to the point to where they'll never repent. You see, Jesus could say this, these statements in this passage because he knew the state of the heart of these Pharisees. We don't know. And so we work and we pray and we evangelize with a humble heart that God will save even the most prideful of sinners. That was me once. The last and final way that we can make this practical is remembering that we just need to abide in him. Abide in him. You want the power of the spirit in your life? You want to get in on the power of the kingdom of God that, that, that Jesus Christ is ushering forth in the power of the spirit? And you got to abide in him. You got to abide in him. You want to be a good tree that bears good fruit. And so you pray. You come to worship on the Lord's day. You sing songs to Christ. You receive the Lord's Supper. You read God's word. These are all ways that we abide in Christ. Because what's the connection between binding Satan and bearing fruit? It's that what's on the inside will determine what's on the outside. And if it's the Holy Spirit in us, then we walk. We walk in the victory of the resurrection, and we walk in the newness of life. When Jesus said in verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Know that that changes everything. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus brings the kingdom of God, and he invites us into that kingdom. Not only has he cast out evil spirits, but he gives us his spirit so that we can bear fruit that ushers in his kingdom. So don't focus on the evil things that you've done. Focus on Jesus. Don't focus on getting good fruit to staple onto the outside, but focus on Jesus. God has given us his kingdom in Jesus. He's given us his kingdom in Jesus. What a great God. What a merciful God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.